This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. We have episode 311 entitled, Is Clement of Rome a Trinitarian? This should be a great topic to explore as the spring semester is starting. For those of you that are in school or graduate school or working on a doctorate, I'm on campus today, and of course, it is quite vibrant and it's very, very good to be exploring into these scholarly topics. So, what did the earliest Christians believe? Now, most would answer this question by simply looking into the New Testament documents, and they wouldn't be wrong to do so. But what did the earliest documented Christian who wasn't a New Testament author believe and teach, particularly about God and who God is? This is where Clement of Rome comes in. And he is the author of the letter that is known today as First Clement. So this week's episode, we'll look at Clement of Rome, who wrote sometime between the year 70 and probably the mid-90s AD. Clement was a bishop in Rome, and he was writing to the church in Corinth. Of course, we know about the church in Rome and the church at Corinth quite strongly because of Paul writing to both of those locations. Now, Clement is an extremely important person for the study of early Christianity because he is the earliest non-canonical Christian writer whose letter has survived. He is the earliest Christian writer who isn't a writer of a New Testament document. And we can learn a lot about early Christianity and we can see what it was like in the late first century for someone living in Rome and the sort of things that he believed. And Clement actually wrote before many of the other New Testament books were even completed, like the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John and the Book of Revelation. Those were written after First Clement and very likely some other books as well. And Clement, as we will soon see, has a lot to say about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, was Clement of Rome an early Trinitarian teaching that the only true God is three distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential? What did Clement believe about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at Clement's understanding of God. Let's, of course, start with God. There's no other person that would be important to start with other than God. So, something to describe before we get started. Clement regularly describes the Christian God within First Clement with the definite article. It'll be the God, O Theos. So, you'll constantly see me 
taking the Greek and I'm translating it as the God whenever the definite article shows up, even though we typically describe the God simply as God. It's also important to note that Clement is regularly going to illustrate this God as the master several times, dozens of times in First Clement does he describe God as the master. In Greek, that is o despotis. Clement will describe God as the despot more times than all the other New Testament writers combined. So, in the prologue, this God is described as the almighty God, using the noun pantocrator. And of course, the almighty, the pantocrator, means a single person, a single almighty person. The Almighty God is one single person. In chapter 8, Clement says that the master of all things himself spoke about repentance with an oath. And then he goes on and he cites Ezekiel 33.11. And then he continues and says, As I live, declares the Lord, I do not want the sinner to die but to repent. That's chapter 8, verse 2. So here we have the master of all things himself speaking. And in Greek, what we have here is the intensive use of the nominative pronoun, the third person pronoun optos. We have optos o despotis. So we have the master, the despot himself, stressing the fact that this master of all things is a single person, is only one person. And then Clement quotes a Yahweh passage, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, and then he says that as I live, declares the Lord. So who is the Lord, the single Lord? That, of course, is the master of all things himself. Yahweh, of course, is a single person, the master of all things himself. And, of course, there are a variety of singular verbs that are used in this passage to further match the fact that there is an inattensive use of the singular pronoun. Let's move along. In the very next verse, in chapter 8, verse 3, Clement says that you will return to me with your whole heart and say, Father, end quote. So there in chapter 8, verse 3, the one who returns in light of the repentance from the previous verse, the citation of Ezekiel 33, verse 11, the one who returns will describe God as the Father. Who is his Father? Well, we just saw the Father is the master of all things himself. Who is the master of all things? That, of course, is the Father. Let's move along. In chapter 19, Clement says that we should gaze intently on the Father and Creator of the entire world and cling to his magnificent and superior gifts of peace. He goes on and he says that we should realize how he feels no anger towards his entire creation. That's chapter 19, verses 2 through 3. Here we can see that the creator for Clement is described as the father. He is the father and the creator of the entire world. And this creator is described with a variety of singular references. His magnificent and superior gifts, how he feels, his entire creation. The creator for Clement is the Father alone. 
Now in chapter 26, and really it's chapters 24, 25, and 26, Clement is going to describe the resurrection, how the resurrection functions. So in chapter 26, verse 1, he says, Do we then think that it is so great and marvelous that the Creator of all things will raise everyone who has served Him in a holy way with confidence of good faith? So the Creator of all things is going to raise, he's going to resurrect everyone. But two chapters earlier, in chapter 24, Clement says that the Master raised none other than the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. So if the Master raised the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Creator of all things will raise everyone, and that indicates that the Creator of all things is that Master who raised the Lord Jesus Christ. This would, by definition, distinguish the Creator of all things from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died, and the Creator of all things, the one who brought Jesus back from the dead. Moving on, in chapter 27, Clement says that nothing is impossible with God except lying. Let faith in him be rekindled within us, and let us realize that all things are near to him. By the word of his majesty, he established all things, and by his word, he is able to destroy them. That's chapter 27, verses 2 through 4. So here we can see that God is the one who has established all things with his word. But with this very same word, he's able to destroy all these things. And this indicates that God, of course, is functioning as the creator. He's the one who has established all things, but he did so through the agency of his word. There's no indication here that this word is a conscious person alongside God. It's not described as the Son. It's not described as a spirit being or the angel of the Lord or Michael the archangel. It's just his word. It's just his speech. Now, some have thought that God creating with his word is a reference to the new creation. But Clement here is describing something that has already taken place in the past. He says, by the word of his majesty, he established all things. And we also have confirmation that this is not in reference to the new creation because it indicates that with this word, he's able to destroy them. And there's no indication in New Testament theology that God is going to destroy his new creation. So this seems to be yet another reference, like Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, Psalm 33, verse 6, and of course a little bit later in John 1, where God has created all things with his word. Clement of Rome is the earliest Christian giving an interpretation on the meaning of Genesis 1.26, the famous let us make man passage, that plural reference there describing the creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Now you're probably aware that the competing interpretations of Genesis 1.26 involve the us referring to the angelic host, God speaking to the angels. Some people think that God is speaking to the pre-existent son, or God is speaking to some sort of spirit being, or God is speaking to his logos, whatever that might be. My personal thought is that Genesis 126 is describing 
the plural majesty or an intensive plural use of Elohim. But it doesn't really matter what I think. What's interesting here is that Clement is going to give us the first documented Christian interpretation of 126. So Clement says in chapter 33, For the creator and maker of all things rejoices in his works. For he established the heavens with this all-superior power, and with this incomprehensible understanding he set them in order. Passage goes on, he says, By his own spoken word, he commanded the living creatures that roam about on it to come into being. Clement continues and he says, And with his holy and perfect hands, he formed the one who was preeminent and superior in intelligence to all, namely the human, stamped with his own image. For as God says, let us make a human according to our image and likeness. And God made the human male and female. He made them. That's First Clement 33 verses 2 through 5. And here, this is Clement quoting Genesis 126 and also 127 and describing it in terms of the ways in which God has brought about creation based on the passage in Genesis chapter 1. So, in describing Genesis 126, what does Clement say about this plural reference? Does he have anything to say about angels, or pre-existing sun, or pre-existent spirit being, or the logos of some sort of conscious being? He doesn't have anything to say about those things. They're not even present in the passage. What we do have is a bunch of of singular references. We have the creator, the maker, the one who rejoices in his works. He established the heavens with his all superior power, with his incomprehensible understanding. He set them in order by his spoken word, which is clearly his creative and powerful utterance. He commanded the living creatures. It's with his holy and perfect hands that he formed the human being, stamped with his own image. Listen to all these singular references. God says, again, third person singular, and God made, third person singular, the human. Male and female, he made them. So in quoting Genesis 1.26, Clement has nothing to say about other persons alongside God that are being involved in this conversation, let us make human according to our image and our likeness. So I think, again, the most likely interpretation is that Genesis 126 was a plural of majesty, and that seems to be at least the most likely interpretation of what Clement believed. Moving on, in chapter 35, he says, What therefore has been prepared for those who wait. The maker and father of the ages, the all-holy one, he himself knows. That's chapter 35, verse 3. So here we can see the all-holy one. Who is the holy one? The all-holy one, who is described as a single self, he himself knows. That is, of course, the maker and the father of the ages. The holy one, is the Father, the Maker. Not the Holy Three, 
the Holy One. That Holy One is the Father. Moving on, Clement is going to describe the God who is interacting with Moses during the exodus from Egypt. And in doing so, he has a couple of interesting adjectives to describe God's name. So in chapter 43, verse 6, Clement says that the name of the true one and the holy one to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's chapter 43, verse 6. What is going on here? Well, Clement is going to use these two adjectives, and in Greek they are alithinos and monos. He uses these adjectives to describe God as the true one and as the only one. It's interesting because these two adjectives also describe God in John 17.3, and there's no relation between 1 Clement and the Gospel of John. They are independently describing God as the true one and as the only one in such very strong terms. And just to make it absolutely clear, in chapter 62, verse 2, Clement describes the one who is both God and creator as the Father. The Father who is both God and creator. So, what did Clement of Rome think about God? Well, God is the Father alone, the only maker, the only creator, and the creator of all things, who created with his, his word, his creative and powerful speech. The God of Clement of Rome is the Father alone. Let's move to our second point, point number two, distinguishing God and Jesus. What did Clement have to say about the relationship between God and Jesus? Well, let's see. In the prologue of First Clement, he says, to those who have been called and made holy by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we can see that we have the will of God, and this, of course, is being brought about through our Lord Jesus Christ. This seems to indicate that Jesus is the means through which God's will is going to come into effect, and in doing so, God and Jesus are distinguished. In the next line of the prologue, Clement says, Grace and peace from the Almighty God through Jesus Christ. Again, distinguishing God and Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom the Almighty God is going to bring about grace and peace. And so we have the greetings there in the letter, in the epistle, and Clement, who almost certainly has access to many of Paul's written letters. We'll talk a little bit more about one of those here in a few moments. But Clement is influenced by the way that Paul writes the letters, and where Paul will say, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Clement will see grace and peace from the Almighty God through Jesus Christ. Again, clearly distinguishing those two beings. In chapter 7, Clement says that we should gaze intently on the blood of Christ and realize how precious it is to his Father. That's chapter 7, verse 4. Now, this is, of course, 
distinguishing Christ and the Father, which is pretty obvious. The New Testament does that hundreds of times. But what's interesting here is that the relationship between Christ and the Father is that the Father is Christ's Father. In Greek, it's to patri of two, the Father of him. So Jesus had a Father, and that Father, of course, is God, the Almighty God, the Maker and the Creator of all things. In chapter 16, Clement says that the scepter of the majesty of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not come with an ostentatious show of arrogance or haughtiness, even though he could have done so, but he came with a humble mind. This is chapter 16, verse 2. And this passage is super fascinating. I mentioned earlier that Clement had access to some of Paul's letters, and here it seems that Clement has access to Philippians. And Clement is actually in this passage, going to comment on the Christ passage, the Christological passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And it's interesting, just like Clement was able to give us the earliest Christian interpretation of Genesis 126, Clement is also able to give us the earliest Christian interpretation of the controversial Christological passage in Philippians 2. And he does so by saying that Jesus didn't come with arrogance or haughtiness, although that he could have done that. Instead, Jesus came with a humble mind. And in describing this, Clement is not going to attribute any sort of pre-existence to Jesus. He's not going to identify him with God. In fact, in this passage and in the context that follows, Clement is going to regularly distinguish Jesus and God. They are two separate beings. What's also interesting is that Clement is going to go on in this passage and he's going to cite the entirety of Isaiah 53, all 12 verses. And of course, I've argued elsewhere that when Paul says that God has highly exalted Jesus and that Jesus poured out himself unto death, that these are two references to that passage there in Isaiah 53. Also, the beginning of 53 kind of moves backwards a little bit to the last part of Isaiah 52. So I've argued that Paul is alluding to Isaiah 53, and it's interesting here that Clement is going to cite the entirety of Isaiah 53 in order to describe what's going on in Philippians 2, or at least the theology of Philippians 2. Now, after Clement cites all of Isaiah 53, he goes on and he says, You see, beloved men, the example that he has given to us. For if the Lord was humble-minded in this way, what shall we ourselves do? Chapter 16, verse 17. So Clement indicates that the function of Philippians 2 was to set Jesus as an example that people can look at and they can follow. And they were to look at Jesus as someone who had a mind that was humble. And so when people are to have the same mindset as those who are in Christ Jesus, they are following after his example. And at least Clement seems to indicate that this 
is an example of Jesus not described as having preexistence and not being identified as God that one day decided to give up the form of God in order to become a human being. And he describes Jesus in terms of the sacrifice in Isaiah 53. So it's a really fascinating interpretation of Philippians 2, and it's the earliest documented interpretation of Philippians 2. It has nothing to do with the preexistence of Jesus or Jesus formally being God and deciding to become man. Let's move along. In 1 Clement chapter 20, he says that the great creator and master of all appointed all these things to be in peace and harmony, bringing great benefits to all things, but most especially to us who flee to his compassion through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 20, verse 11. So here we have the Lord Jesus Christ being distinguished from the great creator and master of all, the one who appointed all these things, the one who brings great benefits to all things. So Jesus, of course, is not the creator and master of all things. The creator and master of all things is the one that works through our Lord Jesus Christ. What else does Clement have to say about the relationship between God and Jesus? In chapter 24, he says, We should consider, beloved ones, how the Master continuously shows us the future resurrection that is going to occur, of which he has made the Lord Jesus Christ the first fruit by raising him from the dead. That's chapter 24, verse 1. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was raised by the Master, clearly distinguishing them, and it indicates that Jesus, of course, is someone whose resurrection is related to the resurrection of all Christians. And what's also interesting is that from the perspective of First Clement, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is still something that has not yet taken place. It is a future resurrection. And if First Clement was written after 70 AD, then these sort of theologies that early Christians were partial predators and that the resurrection took place in 70 AD is completely and utterly debunked. He still believes that the resurrection is going to occur in the future, and Jesus was the first fruits of that resurrection. But the main point here is that Jesus is distinguished from the master who raised Jesus from the dead. Moving on, let's look at chapter 32. In this chapter, Clement says, Whoever will honestly consider each of these matters will recognize the greatness of the gifts given by him. And I think the him here is God. And he goes on, he says, For out of him, and in this context, the previous chapter is talking about Jacob, for out of him came the priest and all the Levites who minister at the altar of God. Out of him came the Lord Jesus according to the flesh. Out of him came the kings, rulers, and leaders in the line of Judah. And all other scepters enjoyed no small glory either, since the God had promised, quote, your offspring will be like the stars of heaven. 
end quote. That's chapter 32, verses 1 through 2. So it's likely here that when it says out of him, and notice we have that three times, this is a reference to Jacob, and that's because he's mentioned as the previous reference at the end of chapter 31. But notice, out of Jacob come priest Levites, also the Lord Jesus, and kings, rulers, and leaders. Jesus just kind of mixed in there as a natural descendant that comes like the priests that come out of Jacob, the Levites that come out of Jacob, the kings and the rulers and leaders that come out of Jacob, namely out of the line of Judah. This indicates that Jesus is a biological lineal descendant of Jacob. He's a human being. He's a man. He's a member of the human race. He's a Jew. And then when Clement wants to take all of these together, he describes them as your offspring will be like the stars of heaven, quoting Genesis chapter 22. This would mean that Jesus, like the priest and the Levites and the kings and the rulers and the leaders of the line of Judah, are part of the offspring of Jacob. This means that Clement thought that Jesus was a man. He's a member of the human race, and he is a descendant of Jacob in the same way that priests and Levites and kings and rulers and leaders and Judah were. It's very fascinating. Now, Clement also is going to describe for us what he means by saying Jesus was sent by God. Does this mean that Jesus was sent by God as Jesus pre-existing in heaven and now he has come down to earth? Well, in chapter 42, Clement says that the apostles were given the gospel for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was sent forth by God. Thus, Christ came from God and the apostles from Christ. Both things happened then in an orderly way according to the will of God. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 2. Now, at a surface level, it seems to indicate there's an increasing level of hierarchy. We have the apostles, and they were empowered with the gospel by Jesus, and Jesus was sent by God. So we have God at the top, Jesus in second place, and the apostles in third place. So when Clement describes that relationship, he says, thus, like in this way, Christ came from God and the apostles came from Christ. And it's clearer in the Greek. We have Jesus is apo to theu. He is from the God, but the apostles are apo to Christu. The apostles are from Christ in the same way that Jesus is from the God. So, of course, Jesus is distinguished from God, but it seems that Jesus is from God in the same way that the apostles are from Jesus, which indicates that the from is in the sense of a commissioning. They are commissioned with the mission. As prophets, they have a job and a responsibility. They are agents of the sender. That seems to be what Clement means when he says that Jesus was sent by God. In chapter 46, Clement says that, Do we not have one God, and one Christ, and one gracious Spirit that has been poured out upon us, and one calling in Christ? That's chapter 46, verse 6. 
So notice there we have four things. We have one God, one Christ, one gracious spirit, and one calling. So the first thing we can note about this is that, again, we see quite clearly the one God is distinguished from Christ. Notice the one God is not described as the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We have the one God set alongside the one Christ. That would mean that they are distinguished. Now we also see that the Spirit, when you look in the Greek, is actually defined with a neuter pronoun. It's not the Spirit who has been poured out. It's the one Spirit that has been poured out upon us. But we also note in this sentence, in the very same breath, that we have the one calling, the one calling in Christ. And this one calling is put in the very same sentence along with the God, Christ, and the poured out Spirit. This indicates that a collection of three, a triad of God, Christ, and the Spirit was never intended if Clement can just casually put along in there the one calling. So we don't have the sort of language here that we see in the 5th century councils. In chapter 49, Clement says that everyone chosen by the God has been perfected in love. Apart from love, nothing is pleasing to the God. The Master has received us in love. Because of this love he had for us, our Lord Jesus Christ gave his blood for us by God's will, his flesh for our flesh, his soul for our souls. That's chapter 49, verses 5 through 6. So here, God has perfected love. Because of this love, Jesus gave his blood for us. And how did Jesus die? Well, his flesh was given for our flesh and his soul for our souls. So this indicates that the flesh of Jesus is not some sort of definition of like one of his two natures, as if he has two natures, a God nature and a man nature. No, the flesh of Jesus is a way of describing his humanity, his mortality, in the same way that Christians have flesh, humanity, and mortality. Jesus died for the flesh of other humans. And how did Jesus die? Well, his entire soul was given for our souls. This, of course, indicates that the first non-biblical Christian writer also did not believe in the immortal soul. He believed that Jesus' soul died on behalf of our souls. Our souls are not immortal. Jesus' soul was not immortal. So, very interesting way of looking at the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, Clement goes on in chapter 59, and he says to take our advice that you will have no regrets, for as the God lives, and as the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and the Holy Spirit, as also the faith and hope of those who are chosen. So in this passage, it's interesting. He does talk about God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, but he describes God as the one who lives. He describes Christ as the one who lives, but the Greek verb zao, the verb to live, is not used of the Holy Spirit. He could have used that if he wanted to say the Holy Spirit is a living being in the same way that the Father and the Son are living, but he doesn't. It's very interesting. And in fact, the particular lobe 
classical library translation actually misrepresents this. You actually have to go and look in the Greek to get the specifics of it because the English is misleading here. So God lives, Lord Jesus Christ lives, they're distinguished, but the Holy Spirit is not living because it's just the power and the presence of the one God. Okay, we're getting close to the end. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit because we're spending a lot of time on this. In chapter 59, verse 2, this is a very important chapter for our study, Clement says that we will ask with a fervent prayer and petition that the Creator of all safeguard the number of those counted among his elect through the entire world through his beloved child, Jesus Christ. That's chapter 59, verse 2. So here we have the Creator of all having a child, and that child is Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is the Son of the Creator, then the Creator, by definition, is the Father alone. In the very next verse, in chapter 59, verse 3, Clement again says, quote, Through Jesus Christ, your beloved child, end quote. Again, indicating that God had a beloved child, and that child is Jesus Christ. This God, of course, is the Father alone. The most important passage is in the next verse, 59 verse 4, where Clement says, Let all the nations know that you alone are the God, that Jesus Christ is your child, and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Chapter 59 verse 4. So here we can see that God is described as a single person. You alone are the God. Jesus Christ is distinguished from the one who alone is God. Jesus, in fact, is the child, the son of the one who alone is God. And we are the people, your people, indicating that God, again, is a single person, your people, and the sheep of your pasture. In Greek there, just to be clear that we are talking about a single person, we have O-T-C-E-O-Theos Monos. So we have that, you, second person singular, are, second person singular, O, the singular definite article, Theos, the singular noun, and then Monos, the singular adjective. So in that reference there, we have five singular references and the strongest possible grammatical connection to indicate that the God is alone the God, you alone, in a way that distinguishes him from Jesus, the child of the one who alone is God. It's a very strong distinction between God and Jesus there. And he does so, again, by using the emphatic use of the nominative pronoun here. Moving along in chapter 61, verse 3, Clement says, you who alone can do these things for us and do what is more abundantly good, we praise you through the high priest and benefactor of our souls, Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have the one who alone can do these things, and Clement praises him through the high priest, Jesus. So again, we have the one who alone is God, Jesus distinguished from that person. And then... Towards the end, Clement gives a benediction. His benediction is this, chapter 64, verse 1. May the God who observes all things, the master of spirits 
and Lord of all flesh, he who chose both the Lord Jesus Christ and us through him to be his special people. Chapter 64, verse 1. So God, the master of spirits and the Lord of all flesh, chose us and he chose the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have God being the subject. We have the verb to choose, the verb to elect, basically. And we have two objects, Lord Jesus Christ and us. And we are his special people through him, through the Lord Jesus Christ. But God chose Jesus and God chose us. So, again, there's a pretty clear distinction there between the God, who is the master of spirits and the Lord of all flesh. So that's pretty clear to me, indicating that Clement regularly distinguishes God and Jesus in a way that clearly is subordinating Jesus to the one God. Our last point is Clement on the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to spend much time on this because most of the things that Clement says about the Spirit involve the fact that the Spirit is what inspires the Scriptures, the Holy Writings. In chapter 2, he says, For this reason, a deep and rich peace was given to all along with an insatiable desire for doing good, and a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit came upon everyone. And being filled with the Holy Will, you used to stretch out your hands to the Almighty God. That's chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. So here, the Holy Spirit is given to all, but this is further defined as the will of the Almighty God. This, of course, indicates the Spirit is the gift that's given to all. In chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Those who administered the gracious gift of God spoke through the Holy Spirit about repentance. So here, the Spirit inspires those who are speaking about God's gift. In chapter 21, verse 2, Clement says that the Spirit of the Lord is a lamp that searches out the recesses deep within us. In doing so, he's citing Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, if I'm not mistaken. The Spirit of the Lord is like a lamp. It's something that illumines and it searches out the deep parts within us. In chapter 42, verse 3, he says that the apostles, brimming with confidence through the Holy Spirit, preached throughout the countryside and in these cities. So the Spirit is what gave the apostles confidence to proclaim the Gospels in the cities and in the countryside. In chapter 45, verse 2, it says that you have gazed into the holy and true scriptures that were given through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the holy writings, the holy scriptures. Now, Clement indicates that Paul was actually an inspired writer because he says in chapter 47, verse 3, to be sure, Paul sent to you an epistle in the Spirit. Chapter 47, verse 3. So Paul wrote a spiritualized epistle. So we have uh, in Greek the pneumatikos epistelen, the verb to send an epistle, and this was in the Spirit. In a passage that might, as a man, get me in trouble, uh, chapter 55, verse 3, 
as Clement saying that many women are empowered by the gracious gift of God to perform many manly deeds. That's what Clement says. That's what he says. It's not me. That's what he's saying. And he goes on and he cites some examples from Judith, one of the uh, female uh, heroes in the Septuagint literature. And of course, he cites the example from Esther, the biblical book of Esther. But these women are empowered by God's gracious gift. We've already seen the gracious gift being described as the Holy Spirit. So clearly the women are empowered by the Spirit as this empowering force that allows them to perform deeds. And lastly, chapter 63, verse 2, Clement says, You will make us joyful and happy if you become obedient to what we have written through the Holy Spirit. And this is really fascinating because it seems to indicate that Clement believes that his own writings were written through the Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit for Clement? Well, it seems to be the empowerment of God to do good deeds, to give meaning to the scriptures, to legitimize the writings of Paul, and even to give legitimacy to Clement's own writings. So, to answer the question, was Clement of Rome a Trinitarian? And we would have to answer that with a resounding no. Clement was not a Trinitarian. He doesn't seem to believe in the conscious, personal preexistence of Jesus. Clement seems to be a biblical Unitarian, the earliest non-biblical biblical Unitarian from the first century. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we explore another early Christian document, the Didache. And we're going to see what it has to say about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Was the author of the Didache a late 1st century, potentially early 2nd century document? Was this author a Trinitarian? We've already seen that Clement wasn't a Trinitarian, not even close. What about the author of the Didache? Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link, or you can subscribe on YouTube. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.